Well, good morning. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13. There you go, brother. Thank you so much. Uh, I thank God for you, Jesse. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. And we look forward to hearing more. Um, I'm always amazed at how talented people are. Uh, to be able to play the piano, to sing that way, to, to arrange it in, in a way that uh, I know I could never do. And you all have those different skills and talents that just blow me away. Uh, the, we have people that have written books that I, I can't believe you actually finished a book. And, and it was published. We have people that have done so many things. And so uh, you, you all continue to astound me in the many ways that God has gifted you. But take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And I want us to look at a passage where we look at what Jesus encounters as he goes back home. And as you make your way to Matthew chapter 13, we want to look at verses 53 through 58. And I think it's safe to say the kingdom of God coming in Jesus Christ is good news. We, we've, we've just heard these songs and, and we lifted up our hearts in worship about the good news that Jesus paid it all. That our salvation is dependent and rests on the, the solid ground, the bedrock of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Jesus came and he taught and he taught his disciples. And we talked last week about how he taught them and commissioned them, <laughs> excuse me, to take his teachings and pass them on. And so we might think this good news that we get to herald is so wonderful. It's so encouraging that God in Christ was reconciling sinners back to himself. This good news that, that God is making everything right in and through Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The good news that salvation is received by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is good news because our salvation is based on Jesus' perfect life. Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, A day is coming when the Lord would tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This good news that the kingdom of God was being established and one day it would be here in its fullness and its righteousness and its completeness and its glory and, and the good news that because of Jesus Christ we will one day see God face to face the way we see each other face to face and we will see the, the glory of the Lord in its fullness. And not just that, the glory of the Lord would, would cover the face of the earth, as Habakkuk 2.12 says. As the waters cover the sea, all will be made right. God will once again dwell with man because he has purchased a people for himself. That is good news, is it not? Those for whom Christ died and purchased by his blood, those who believe in him will have eternal life, peace, joy, with good news like that, we know that the rest of the gospel of Matthew is just filled with thousands and millions of people hearing that wonderful news and saying, yes, sign me up. And Jesus ushers in and he's led into this great procession and he, he ends up establishing this kingdom that, that covers the faith. Everybody receives this good news with open arms, right? 
Is that how the rest of the Gospels go? No. So we have this good news that, that because it's so good, we might expect that there's no way that anybody would say no. That there's no way that the ministry of Jesus is not just mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. That, that there would be unmitigated, unparalleled, unceasing growth in the kingdom. The, the news is that good, is it not? That's what you'd expect. And in fact, sometimes we expect that in our own life. When we are, commit to following Jesus, we say, I, Jesus, I follow you. I want, I, I'm seeking by your grace to be as faithful as possible. And we may not realize it or not. Whether we realize it or not, we might be buying into this assumption that as long as I am faithful, as long as, as I am living the life that Jesus would call me to live, I can also experience mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. We might think that seeking to share such wonderful news will always lead to wonderful results. The only problem with that is that's not the model that we see in Jesus' own life. So this morning, I want us to consider what it looks like to have the right perspective on the goodness of the news of the gospel and the reality of our expectations. The goodness of the gospel, the goodness of the news, and our expectations. When we come to Matthew 13, 53, it's kind of a transition section. It's the end of this teaching section that we've been going through. And it's also preparing us for really the rest of Matthew in the next major section, verse uh, chapter 14 through 17. And in this section of, of our passage this morning in the end of Matthew 17, we are shown various responses to Jesus. Matthew records many responses, and about seven of these recorded responses are negative. They are responses of unbelief to the message of Jesus. And the first one we see is that it's not just out on the mission field, it's not just in a faraway land, it starts right at home with Jesus. Look at verses 53 and 54. Matthew records Jesus' departure. It says, When he had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom? And these Miraculous powers. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this, isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? In verse 57, and they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not well without honor in his own, except in his own town and his household. In verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So Jesus is leaving where he was, and he heads to his hometown. He finishes his parables, and he heads towards the area of Nazareth. And notice, it says that he began to teach. And this refers to an undefined amount of time. So Jesus has, has started teaching in this hometown, and he has a habit of that. He's going to the synagogue and he's teaching. And eventually, we don't know how long it took, but eventually there is a response. What's the result? Well, what would we hope? 
We would hope that there would be a great response, that, that many people would believe in Jesus. But what do we find? Well, as you continue reading on, notice there's two responses, really. Number one, look at what it says in verse 54. He was, began to teach them in the synagogue, and so that, what happened? They were astonished. They were astonished. They were greatly astounded. They were amazed that, that Jesus is saying the things that he's saying. And they even asked, where did this fellow get all this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So they recognize that Jesus has wisdom and they recognize he has power, but they can't wrap their mind around of how does this local boy from Nazareth have all this wisdom and power? I'm reminded of the opening words of Jane Austen's work, Northanger Abbey. The main character is introduced in this way. It says, no one would have ever seen, sorry, no one who had ever seen Catherine Moreland in her infancy would have supposed her born to be a heroine. Nobody was looking at Jesus and thinking, that guy looks like a hero. They're astonished and they're looking at Jesus and going, hey, this guy. You believe this guy? Hey, Tony, isn't that your, your brother's mother's cousin? You believe this guy? Hey, isn't, isn't one of his brothers you got in a fight with him behind the grocery store back in, uh, what was it, in 05? You believe this guy? Don't you remember, hey, John, doesn't your son like one of his sisters? Are they still together? Oh, that's a shame. That's the vibe of their comments, right? Like, who is this guy? Isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't Mary his mother? We know him. We know where he came from. How can he have all this power and wisdom? And they're, the way they ask the question is that they're saying that there's, it's not possible. There's no way. And one of the reasons why they might be struggling is because if you know the Old Testament, really this kind of supernatural power and wisdom only comes from God. James 1.5, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Why? Because God is the source of all wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So wisdom comes from the Lord. And here Jesus is full of wisdom. But he also has this power. And it's not just power. It's miraculous power. Your translation might say mighty works. So they've caught some wind of the things that Jesus is doing. And they're, they're trying to reconcile. Here's this kid, this guy that grew up. We know his family. We know where he's from. But he has unprecedented God-like wisdom and God-like power. How do we make sense of this? So, they're astonished. There's a cognitive dissonance in the minds of the people. But they're not just astonished because look at verse 57. It says, and they were offended by him. So they're not just astonished. They're offended they're offended. And the word here is the Greek word scandalizo. You can hear our word scandalize. They were, they were, it's not offense like you said something that hurt my feelings. This, this is something that's deeper. They were offended to the point that they are being led into sin. They were confronted with the truth 
that this dude is both man and God. And that truth came to them in such a way that they either had to accept it and believe it or reject it. And when presented with that, they were led into sin. Why? What does Jesus say? It says they were offended by him. And Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his household. And it says he did not do many miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief. So they're presented with who Jesus is and, and what he has and what he can do. And they're offended because of their unbelief. They were so repelled by Jesus that this situation allowed for their unbelief to be on full display. Last week, we said the life of a disciple is one of receiving the teachings of Jesus. Here, these people don't receive. They reject the teachings and Jesus himself. So, so let's do the math for the hometown response, okay? Sarcastic astonishment plus sinful offense. And what does it equal? A total rejection of Jesus. So last week we said it's not just a life of receiving the teachings of Jesus, but passing them along. So the question is, what response should we expect as we seek to do that? If you, if you received the message last week and you said, yes, I want to receive the teachings of Jesus and pass them on. By God's grace, I'm going to do that. What should you expect to happen? How do they respond to Jesus? Unbelief and rejection. Jesus goes to his own hometown and instead of a welcome reception, he gets a willful rejection. Instead of acceptance, Matthew stresses that Jesus does not do anything there because of their unbelief. So if we could summarize the main idea this morning, if you remember nothing else, I hope you will remember this. Connected to last week, as we live out the life of a disciple... You should not be surprised when you encounter rejection, ridicule, and refusal. That's what we see in, in Jesus' uh, interaction in his hometown. We should not be surprised when we encounter rejection, ridicule, and refusal. If Jesus himself did not escape these, why do we think we will? As we live out the life of a disciple, don't be surprised when you encounter rejection, ridicule, and refusal. You know, one of the things that will help you in reading your Bible is not just to ask what a passage says, but ask where it says it. We've just had a whole section on teaching about the kingdom of God. And it ended with Jesus saying, receive these teachings and go out and do likewise. And then immediately after that, what does Matthew put? He says, in other words, he's saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, understand you're going to follow Jesus and how people respond to Jesus. So, I, I think about Luke 6.40. It says, Jesus, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is fully trained, you remember last week we talked about being trained for the kingdom. Everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. So Jesus has not only modeled the kingdom and how it comes and how it grows, but he's also modeled for us, we see in his life, what we should expect. So how then are we to respond? If we know 
that there's going to be rejection. How do we respond to that rejection? What's, what's the proper response? Before we talk about the right response, I want to talk about three ways that we often wrongly respond to rejection. And this is what Christians will often do. First of all, we try to short-arm rejection. We short-arm rejection. What do I mean by this? Well, you can understand it two ways. One way we short-arm rejection is we try to cozy up to our would-be persecutors. We try to put an arm around them and say, Hey, look, we're basically the same. I mean, sure, we, we disagree on some things, but we agree on a lot of things. Oh, I, I, know what the, I know what the Bible says. I know what you think the Bible says about that. I don't know what the Bible says, but we don't really, I mean, oof. We're basic, I mean, we're essentially the same. So we, we short arm it by, by compromising on the message. We, we might take the exclusivity of the gospel and say, well, no, actually all people are saved, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Or oh, I, know, I, know what, I know what the Bible says about, about, about marriage, but we, we just, you know, we're, we know better now. I know what it says about gender, but, but science has uh, made it more clear what, what actually the case may be. Whatever it is, we compromise on this message so that we can try to stave off rejection. So we compromise the message. But where in our text does Jesus do that? He doesn't, does he? Absolutely not. Another way we short-arm rejection is by cozying up to persecution itself. In this case, it's not cozying up to the persecutor by compromise. It's trying to invite persecution as if that's the, me- that's the end that we're after. We have not been faithful unless we've been persecuted. Right? So we, we cozy up to persecution itself. In this case, we're seeking to induce persecution. We say the world will reject us, so we haven't done something right if people aren't mad at us, if they're not angry at us. Now, that does happen. And for, for some people, you're not happy unless you're rejected in a, in a, in a very you know, violent or mean way or, or, or something. And, and sometimes, oftentimes what this looks like is we, Christians will just act like jerks. We'll act like jerks, and it's a cycle I've seen over and over again. And once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? You, you, someone acts like a jerk. They get rejected, not even really because of the message, but it's just like they're just unpleasant. And then they say, I'm being persecuted. It's like, well, no, you're just not somebody that's really, you, you get, you're tracking with me, right? Like, it, it, I understand that, that the gospel is offensive, and I understand that people will reject the message of the gospel, but let them reject the message of the gospel, not you, simply because you don't know how to be kind or gracious. So we should expect persecution, we should expect rejection, but not necessarily seek to induce it. And we must not equate rejection as being belligerent 
and, and being rejected for that reason or because we're, we're so militant and, and angry and shouting and then, and then people say, I want no part of that. And you say, well, Jesus said we would be rejected. So there you go. So that's one way. We try to short arm rejection. A second way is we try to stiff arm rejection. We try to stiff arm rejection. And in this reaction, we, we want to keep persecution at a distance. And how we do that is not by compromise. It's by confinement. We either confine the message or we confine ourselves. When we confine the message, we just don't communicate it. We commit ourselves to silence. They can't persecute me for believing the gospel and about Jesus if I never tell anybody. Right? So we try to stay, keep it at arm's length. Or we confine ourselves. We don't engage the world. We don't go into the world. We don't venture. We don't risk we don't step out into the darkness with the light of the gospel. So we try to stiff our rejection. We want that to stay out there, away from us. And we'll do what we have to to make that happen. But we're going to be rejected. At some point, you will come to the point where you cannot stiff arm it. And you cannot hold it off. You will have to Either make it known that you're a follower of Jesus and that you believe in the gospel or be quiet and sin against the Lord. So sometimes we try to short arm it. Sometimes we try to stiff arm it. The third way Christians wrongly respond to rejection is we try to strong arm it. We try to strong arm it. What do I mean by that? Another response to the reality of rejection is the attempt to strong arm that rejection out of existence. And you say, how is that attempted? Well, it's not about compromise and it's not about confinement. This is coercion. Coercion. This is something that is sadly becoming increasingly popular in, in some circles of Christianity. And, and the, the, the thought is this. We know that there's going to be rejection, but what we'll do is we will make them accept us. There was a period in church history that tried that, and it didn't go well for the most part. It, it, it's seeking to enforce Christianity in what many would call, and many theologians would call, a theology of glory. That is a theology of conquest of victory, of submission. But is that the way of Christ for us? I think about when one, some of the disciples asked Jesus, grant it to us that we might sit on your left hand and your right hand, and Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Why? Because where is Jesus going to be the most glorified in the coming days after that question? It's going to be on a cross it's going to be in one of the most humiliating, disgusting, but glorious and beautiful acts to ever occur on the face of the earth. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. The cross is where he's crucified between two thieves. Those who were on his right hand and his left hand. Sinners. It's the cross where his glory is most clearly displayed for us. Paul says in Galatians 
to quote in the King James, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this third way of trying to coerce is not the way of crucifixion. It's the way of conquest, of, of coercion. And we find ourselves in, an, in, a, in a place where many people calling themselves Christians are in favor of enforcing Christianity. And I just want you to know First of all, historically, as Baptist and as a Baptist church, from the, from the very beginning, Baptists have been advocates for religious liberty and religious freedom. We have believed that men and women should be able to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. For, for Baptists, religious freedom, religious liberty is not just for a few. And it's not just for those who believe like we do. Religious liberty only for some is not religious. Religious liberty for only some is religious liberty for none. This coercion of belief and obedience takes many forms. It wears many masks. But they're all usually used to cover up one simple truth. We don't want to face the rejection. We don't want to face our fear of persecution. In Romans 13.8, Paul talks about the government bearing a sword. What this does is seeks to take the sword of the government, the sword of an institution, and use it to accomplish what only the sword of the Spirit can accomplish. As Christians... We need to be wary and cautious. Be careful of any pastor, any politician who would seek to coerce or compel any believer to Christ by force of weapon or government. And you might say, Jason, why? where is this coming from? I haven't seen anything out there like that. It's out there. And it's coming. It's growing. And you need to be aware of it. For us, our hope is not that the government will protect the church, that the government will grow the church, that some other institution. You understand it when Paul says it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. As Christians, we're called to proclaim the message and to seek to persuade a sinner to to plead with the sinner to come to Christ and let the sword of the Spirit do what it does through the Word of God. As we proclaim the gospel, we allow the Spirit to use our proclamation and we entrust it to God's sovereign work. No, we don't compromise the message. We don't confine the message. But we also don't coerce the message. So those are three wrong ways that, that we often respond to rejection. What's the right way? If we expect rejection, if we expect ridicule, if we expect refusal, what's the right response? If it's not compromise, confinement, or coercion, what's the proper way? The proper response is the way Jesus responds. And I don't mean just in this passage. The proper way to respond is the way he ultimately responds a few chapters later. Jesus encounters their unbelief. He doesn't do many works there. But these are not the only people that don't believe. In fact, there are many who don't believe. And Jesus has come 
to rescue those who don't believe. And how does he do that? What is the response that Jesus demonstrates? We've already hinted at it. It's the way of the cross. How does Jesus ultimately respond to their unbelief? He lays down their, his life for them. He lays down his life on a cross. He takes their place. He bears their penalty. He sheds his blood for them. He pays the penalty for their sin by dying. He takes the wrath of God that they deserve for their unbelief and our unbelief. So how do we respond then to rejection? We respond with what I think we could call cruciform grace and mercy. Cross-shaped cross-infused, cross-motivated grace and mercy. We take up our cross, we bear the loss, we bear the rejection because this is the way of Christ. It's on the cross. Think about it. And you might say, Jason, that sounds like losing. Like we're just going to be, we're going to be doormats. We're just going to be run over. But is it not on the cross that Jesus wins through losing? That he triumphs through defeat? That he achieves power through weakness. He comes to wealth by giving all away. You see, it's not just the cross where, where we just we're steamrolled. It's not just that we don't speak up, but we understand the way of the cross and what that means. So whenever we encounter rejection, I think we're called to follow the same path. We walk in cruciform grace and mercy towards those who don't believe. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe. You've never trusted or rested in Christ as your Savior. I want you to know that your rejection of Christ has a consequence and a price. The Word of God tells us that we are created in God's image. You were created in His image and created for fellowship with Him, to join Him in sweet relationship. But the Bible also tells us that this God that created you is holy and righteous and perfect and just And then when you contrast that with what the Bible says about you and about me, that we're sinners, that we're born sinners, that we disobey God, we we choose to rebel, we choose our disbelief. You need to know that that rebellion has consequences. In Romans 6.23, Paul says that the fair payment of your rebellion is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. What we deserve for our sin is physical death and eternal death in a place called hell. But the good news, listen to me, the good news this morning that I have for you today is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, left the glory of heaven to come to live a perfect life, a life without rebellion, a life without sin, to die on a cross, to rise again from the dead and in doing so Jesus came to save you he paid the price of death that you deserve he took upon himself the full judgment of God for our sin the the full weight of of God's righteous wrath his righteous anger was exhausted on Jesus Christ in your place and in the place of all who trust in him in short the good news is is that If you've never believed, you can still be forgiven today. You can have a relationship with the God who created you. 
You were created for that relationship. Here is the greatest thing you will ever hear. It's the good news. In order to be saved, Jesus paid it all. Jesus did everything. What you must respond, how you must respond is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Please don't persist any longer in your unbelief. Come to Christ today and know the freedom and salvation he offers to all who believe. Christians, believers this morning, as you live out a life of a disciple, you'll encounter rejection. What does that cruciform life look like? It looks like entrusting your life and your way to Christ. Following him in the example that he has set. His, his, his cross, his cruciform grace and mercy. We do this because we remember, Christian, remember what Jesus has taught us. We show cruciform grace and mercy because we remember, we know Jesus said that, that well, we remember what it was like to be unbelievers. We remember that Christ died for us and them. We remember to, I don't know, maybe turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. We pray as we're instructed, forgive our debts as we forgive those and forgive our debtors. We know that the way of Christ says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are persecuted, rejected, ridiculed, and refused. Why? Because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's how we respond in cruciform grace and mercy. Because we know what Jesus has taught us. Believer, you also must rest in Jesus' own cruciform life. Let's just be honest. You will not, and you have not, always responded to rejection in the way you should have. Let's just face facts. We've all, at some point, either compromised, been silent, ran from it, Maybe even tried to coerce. But our hope is no different than the unbeliever. Our hope is Christ. So this morning, as you think about the times where you failed to to respond in the right way, trust that Jesus has purchased your pardon. Trust that you are forgiven by the blood of the Son of God which was shed for you. Behold, your great hope is not in how well you respond to rejection. Your hope is that Christ has saved you. You may have compromised. You may have confined. You may have conversed. You may have even rejected Jesus at some point in your life to save your own skin. But I want you to know this. If you trust Christ, there has never, ever, and there will never Ever be a time when Jesus rejects you. That's what the cross means. He died 
so that we might live. He was condemned so that we might be declared innocent. So today, Christian, as you go out, as you seek to live the life of a disciple, understand you will be rejected. Seek to live a life of cruciform, of cross-shaped. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. Be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. All the while know this. Your loving and faithful shepherd will never reject or refuse his sheep. Don't be surprised at the rejection when you experience it. But instead of the unbelief that we see. Believe His wisdom and His mighty works. Believe in His wonderful promises. Believe that He will bring you safely home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You. God, that You call us to to be willing to knowingly go out and experience persecution and rejection you don't call us to avoid it for the sake of our own safety and and pleasure and protection but God you also call us to model that which Jesus shows us God as we seek to live faithfully in this world help us to understand that rejection will come we can't avoid it but what we can do is respond rightly Father, help us to respond rightly when we're rejected. Lord, sometimes we're rejected and it makes us angry. Sometimes we're rejected and it hurts us. Sometimes we're rejected and it costs us. But all of that pales in comparison to what it costs for you to purchase us. Lord, if there's anyone here who maybe this past week, they... They know that they were silent when they should have spoke. Or maybe they knew they compromised when they should have remained steadfast. God, help them to see that you offer grace and forgiveness to them. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray that your spirit would draw them out of their unbelief. And Lord, that they would trust Christ today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.